0: Thanks for that. So this morning is our final uh, Sunday morning around Genesis and uh, in the beginning. So we're gonna wrap it up with Genesis 3. Today, we're gonna actually read through the entire passage again, because we'll actually walk through the story specifically around Adam and Eve and all that happened in Genesis chapter three. So Tricia's here to read. She's gonna read from the Net Bible. Uh, She's gonna take her time. And so I, I really encourage us all to be attentive Uh, to this reading and to take it in and to listen specifically, maybe ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me today? And out of all that you hear, what does the Holy Spirit highlight for you? So again, Genesis chapter 3, and this is from the Net Bible.
1: Genesis 3, 1 through 13, the origin of sin in its fullness. Now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, is it true that God said, you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, you may eat up the fruit of the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said, you must not eat from it and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard in the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman replied, the serpent tricked me and I ate it. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle and all the living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl and dust will you eat all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. To Adam he said, because you obeyed your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. In painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken and from you are dust, and dust you will return. The name came, the man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments for skins for for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and the Lord God said, now that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord expelled him from the orchard in Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had been taken. When he drove the man out, he placed on the eastern side of the orchard in Eden angelic sentries who used the flame of a whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life.
0: I, don't, I know that uh, maybe we couldn't relate as we start this, but after spending a whole week in this passage and reading it over and over again, and, and actually, we've been reading it for about three weeks now, uh, the, I've, I've never felt the emotion and the intensity of this story as I do today, and as I hear it read again, and especially, especially with a little bit of parental voice and kind of the voices that might have been in, in the reading as it was meant to be. And uh, it, in a way, it almost feels like an opera. And I'm sure that in the Hebraic language, it is poetic and has, I, I just, I really believe we can treat the text, this text, as though it is instructional or even a narrative, but I believe it's so much more than that. And it really is written to draw us in deeply. And I hope that as we go through this, today, this morning, that's where we will be taken. In fact, let me pray for that. Holy Spirit, we do ask you to bring uh, the truth of this passage to us. We pray that you would bring it deep into our hearts and bring it deep into our minds as we consider just what took place as it's recounted here for Eve, for Adam, and for all humanity. Let us understand, let us perceive, let us know, let us believe in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Daniel took us through uh, more than just this passage to show us that what is in this passage is a conflict that was not only local, but it was a conflict that is global and a conflict that actually precedes the creation of humanity. So this is a cosmic conflict that has been going on in the heavenly realm between God and all that is good and the evil one and all that is evil. And so, as Daniel said last week, we were created and brought into this cosmic conflict. And God created this very special place that he set apart and resourced it well, and it was a place where his presence was, where he came to visit, and where everything around these two humans reflected God's goodness, his beauty, his order, and his power. And it really was meant to be an experience, a temple of God and his goodness in the midst of a lot of chaos around them and even in the spiritual realm more so. But now we have this invasion that takes place where the evil one somehow by God's sovereignty is allowed into the orchard and then we have this new opportunity and indeed this new tragedy that comes. So essentially what we are looking at today is that the cosmic conflict becomes a human conflict. It becomes for us a very personal conflict and I wanna walk you through chapter three kind of from the back end and work toward the front. Because in a very real way, uh, we are gonna move from the the outcomes of what happened to the process of how it happened, back to the very source of how this uh, tragedy occurred. And we're gonna work our way down to the root of it. So let's do it in this way. First of all, uh, Olivia, would you give me that first slide? The first thing that we're gonna take a look at is the outer conflict that occurred. The conflict that is the cosmic conflict that was going on in the heavenly realm and was present before creation now becomes an outer conflict for Adam and for Eve. First of all, there's a conflict in relationships between humans and other creatures. In chapter 3 verse 15 it says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Certainly this is clearly and first and foremost God declaring what's going to happen between humanity and the evil one and the demonic realm. That there would be this enmity or this hatred between the two. But somehow the animal kingdom is also involved. God is actually speaking to the serpent, to the animal that was present that Satan used to speak to Eve. And if you think about it, there really is a disconnect today in our world between the creatures of the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. I believe, and I'm sure we all believe, that we were actually meant to be in the same space together. That we were actually meant to live among them. And we've been able to do this a little bit with dogs and cats and and even some snakes and some other things. But really, I think there's so much more that God intended us to experience that we don't get to experience because of this fear and this enmity. I remember a few, well, a few decades, I was going to say years, but actually three decades ago, I had the privilege of going to Africa to work uh, on an orphanage, but one of the things we did before we came back was we went on safari, and we actually went and played 18 holes of golf uh, in Botswana, and it was an incredible experience. I, I got my clubs, and I was just wearing you know jeans and a shirt, and I really wasn't dressed for it. Uh, and I went out with my buddies, who are actually millionaires, to golf, and we went out onto um, the course, and animals were all over the course. It was incredible. We had to wait for the antelope to clear the fairway before we could tee off. It was such an experience. Like hole 9 or 13 somewhere, there were warthogs that were kind of in the sand. and It was just incredible. It was so idyllic, but I just had that feeling like, I think this is the way it was meant to be. I think we were meant to intermingle, but that is not the case because of this enmity and this fear that is often between humans and animals. Secondly, in verse 16, God speaks of a heavy burden that is going to be placed on Eve, and actually Adam and Eve as well, when it comes to raising children. And I believe that this is not just a... uh, a declaration of the experience of birthing a child, the labor, but it's a bigger story as well here, that there would be challenge and there would be difficulty in children. And remember, what is the mandate that God gave to humanity? What did he say? He said, be fruitful, have children, and multiply, and rule over the earth. And so there are these two callings that he gives to humanity. One is to reproduce humanity, and the other is to work the ground and to create more gardens and more orchards. So it's these very callings that God called humanity into that are now challenged because of the presence of sin. So we have this heavy burden in producing children. And again, I believe it's more than just labor, but if you think about it, one of the most uh, the greatest challenges to marriages and one of the hardest things that we do in life is to parent children. There's just so many difficulties, so many stress points, so many challenges. I would say probably the pain that we remember the most is teenagers and not, not, well, you should speak for yourself, but <laughs> not the labor on that one day, but the labor of parenting throughout their lives and just the difficulty, the sadness, as well as the joy. But uh, again, there's this heavy burden that exists around this. And then the third thing here that we see in this outer conflict, this social conflict, is the idea that there is this conflict in relationship between man and woman. Conflict in relationship between women and men. And we know this is true in our country just looking at stats. Half of those that fall deeply in love and believe that they were meant to be together for a lifetime and bring around their friends and family and commit to each other and say, you and me forever, this is going to be awesome, give up on that commitment. The stresses, the uh, the tensions that are created and the challenges and the conflicts that come cause us to give on something give up on something we never thought we would have given up on it 's a very real conflict and then lastly the another outer burden or an outer conflict that exists is this relationship between humanity and the ground which we 've already alluded to uh, verses seventeen to nineteen say the ground is cursed because of you. In painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your bough you will eat food until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you will return. And again, as we think in the largest possible terms, no matter what kind of society we work in, one of the greatest toils or struggles we have is this of providing for family. Whether it's the man or the woman, or both of us in partner together, the great challenge in our life so often is work. Where do I work? What kind of work do I do? Do I keep my job? What happens when I lose my job? A lot of the great stresses in our life are around this stress of provision, of creating family. And so here we have, in these two great callings of humanity, to reproduce and to fill the earth and to provide food, are these burdens, these challenges, and they become the major stress points in our life. It's such a spoiler in the most important places, our relationship to creation, our relationship to one another, our relationship to God, and the burdens in raising children and in providing for our family. All this stress and all this conflict has landed because of the cosmic conflict. Now let's move behind this to see the process that opens the door for all of Pandora's box to be open here. And this, I would say, is the inner or the psychological conflict. Olivia, go ahead and put up that next slide. This is the inner conflict. And again, this is the process that took place that's outlined in Genesis chapter 3. So first of all, what happened is confusion around the truth was introduced to Adam and Eve. To this point in their life, the only voice that spoke truth to them was the voice of God. They were innocent, they were highly naive, they were brand new to life, just beginning to figure things out. And the, really the only source for any sense of truth was the voice of God. And that voice said, I've provided all creation for you. I've made grain and I've made trees and I've made the fields and I've made all these animals. This is your home. The truth is I love you. The truth is I've provided everything you need for fullness of life. The truth is also this. I do ask you to not eat from a single tree that I've placed in the middle of this orchard because the day that you eat from it you will die. So he gives humanity the resources for life but he also gives humanity free will. The option to choose or to reject God, his truth and his commandments. So the enemy comes in and he begins to confuse that truth. He offers another voice. And this is that voice, is it really true that God said, you must not eat from any of the trees in the orchard? And notice his goal here is not, first of all, a lie, it's actually confusion. He makes a statement he himself knows is not true. But what he wants to do is throw shade on what is actually true by telling this giant lie that that Eve immediately says, well, no, that's not what God said. He didn't say none of the trees. He just said this one tree that we shouldn't eat it and and that we shouldn't touch it. But now there's confusion. Is there an alternative story to the story that God offers? And this is the next point that we see. There's this alternative voice that offers alternative stories. Satan through the serpent says, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's another story, here's another option. To this point, Adam and Eve have innocently believed and trusted God and they've met with him daily and they've had their talks in the afternoon and life is good. But now another story is introduced. There's confusion, there's an alternate story. And now look where the weight of making the choice lands. It lands with Eve to make a choice. I've heard two stories. I've heard two ideas around God and who he is and what his motives are, and now I need to make a choice. And in this way, Satan is is creating a reliance in Eve and in Adam to make a choice for themselves, to rely on their own resources, their internal clock, their internal judge to decide. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, All the other trees, this was God's will, trees are for food, this tree's for food, it's the same. That it was attractive to the eye, so apparently it was beautiful, just like, man, I I grew up in uh, the Central Valley of California, and Kevin and I have often exchanged stories around the beauty of the fruit that's there. The fruit in Safeway and Fred Meyer's okay. But man, if you get fruit right off the trees in some of the most luscious places like Southern California, I mean, Central California, the peaches are huge. You don't have to eat them, you just smell them. And you start to salivate and you bite into them and you get them all over your clothes and you like that. It's okay. And you just keep eating, you throw that pit away, but that peach is so big, it makes an entire meal. In fact, when I would come home from school, my dad in our landscaping planted fruit trees in our backyard and used them for landscaping. So throughout about nine months of the year, something was always ripe. And it was so fun to come home from school, go straight to the backyard and what's my snack today? And oh, man, that fruit. And just looking at it, you knew this is good. This is gonna taste awesome. And that was the experience Eve was having with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which by the way, I'm gonna suggest is not an apple. I'm going to say I don't think this fruit is on the planet anymore. Let's go on. She saw that it was also desirable to make one wise. Now here's something new that she had been ignorant about. God, as far as we know, had not explained about the tree other than just don't eat it or you will die. He hadn't explained that there was something that you would experience if you ate it. So this has been introduced by the evil one. When she saw that it was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well. And so they've made this choice. They've relied on themselves not to trust the instructions of God, but to make a decision for themselves. And then we have what becomes the most tragic part of this whole story. Let's move into this. First of all, their shame toward one another. All you have so far is one woman and one man. No crowds, no one that's unknown, but you have these two people who have been intimate. It says they were naked and they were not ashamed after they were created. They were naked and they were not ashamed, but now they've eaten this fruit and they look at each other and now they're ashamed and now they want to cover up. What a, what a horror story for this one that you are completely intimate with, that you've begun life with, you now feel like, I need to hide myself. I can't expose myself to him. I can't expose myself to her, but we need to cover up. So shame before others. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then we have this shame transfer, not just between Eve and Adam together, but to God himself. Verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to man, and he said to him, where are you? Think about this moment. God knows it all. God knows about the conversation that had already happened. But he's wanting to take Adam and Eve at their word and hear the story from their lips. But this is that moment when, it was meant to be an awesome moment. It was meant to be that time when Dad, who is God, shows up to visit. A time that would be highly anticipated. That You would hear God and you go, he's here. He's coming, let's go, we're gonna go have our walk. We're gonna go talk with God. With the glory of God comes joy. With the glory of God comes peace. With the glory of God comes so many things. And that, I'm sure, was the consistent experience of Adam and Eve when God showed up, it was a good time. And now you have this tragic reality that God shows up as per usual, their regular appointed time in the cool breeze of the afternoon, and they're hiding. And God speaks into this, where are you? This is our time. This is our moment. Where are you? The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. God has done nothing different than he did any day previous. He doesn't show up as a different God. There aren't circumstances around who God is and what he's done that would cause Eve and Adam to be afraid or to be ashamed. It's simply the choice that was made by Adam and by Eve. And God shows up, again, wanting to take them at face value. So I hid. Imagine the heart of God. What do you imagine the heart of God is in this moment? Anybody have a thought? Anguish. What's that? Sorrow. Sorrow, Sorrow, yeah. Brokenness, yeah. Sorry? Broken hearted, hearted. thank you for taking your mask off. (laughs) Absolutely broken, and remember who God is. God is not thrown off by this. This doesn't change who he is, it doesn't change what he does, and it doesn't change how he relates, but it changes everything for Eve and for Adam and these fragile and vulnerable creatures that he created, have now had their innocence stolen. Have you experienced that as a parent? Or maybe you experienced it as a child, that moment when childhood kind of took a loss that day. Something happened that kind of woke you up um, to realities beyond yourself. Yeah, I'm sure we can think of those moments, and I'd ask you to share them, but there are vulnerable, vulnerable ears in the room and I want to protect them. But think of those moments, or think of that moment uh, for a child in your life, where that innocence, that naivete was deeply assaulted and even stolen and really kind of irreplaceably taken away. And maybe it's not a single incident, but it's an accumulative effect of getting older and becoming aware of things becoming aware of brokenness, our own brokenness and the brokenness of others, of options, of ways to live and choices to make where these choices can be made. And this is the entire experience that God and Eve and Adam are, happening, are having together. Here's where we go. The last two things in the inner conflict of the soul for Eve and Adam is to um, blame God. And so Adam says in response, the woman whom you gave me She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I'm kind of innocent here. I didn't take anything. You gave me this woman and then she gave me this to eat. Really working hard to say it's not my fault. How many of you relate to that? I spend most of my life trying to say it's not my fault. I've spent a lot of my marriage trying to convince Tricia it's not my fault. (laughs) And the reality is that a lot of it is my fault. And a lot of it is her fault. And a lot of it is our children's fault. We are all at fault. We are all at fault. But here's an attempt to say, not my fault. And then finally, uh, Eve adds to the blaming and she says, the serpent tricked me and I ate. The serpent tricked me and I ate. So we blame others. We blame God. And then we even blame other forces. Anybody heard of Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it? Yeah, three people, yeah. Three people over 50, thank you. All right. Yeah, there's just this choice to say it was something else, the devil made me do it. It's not my fault. And again, what must the heart of God been through this entire conversation? What is he thinking? What is he experiencing? It's a mystery and I don't know. I wanna share with you, and this is the heart of where we're headed, a quote from Dr. David Brenner, who's both a psychologist and a theologian, an excellent teacher. And here's what he had to say about this whole scenario. We have believed—I'm sorry, we have this. Thank you. Olivia, you're ahead of me. Appreciate it. We have believed the lie of the serpent. We have believed that freedom comes from the exercise of our autonomy. But true autonomy lies in the choice to give ourselves to others in love. It lies in the absolute surrender of ourself to God and to the kingdom of love. The paradoxical law of God's kingdom is that it is only when we give up what we clutch most desperately that we will receive it. Grasping destroys, surrender restores and transforms. Let me pull out, first of all, the negative side of this beautiful quote, which has two sides to it, a negative side and a positive side. So here's what he says on the negative side. We have believed that the the lie of the serpent, we have believed that freedom comes from the exercise of our autonomy. And then down to the end, what we clutch most desperately, we will receive. Grasping destroys. Grasping destroys. And I believe that this one word, grasping, really sums up so much of what sin is. It happened here in the orchard. It was when Eve reached out and grasped what she had been told not to grasp, that everything fell apart. And it was when Adam reached out, when Eve offered, just as the serpent offered and the tree offered to Eve, Eve offered to Adam, and Adam reached out and he grasped it and he took it to himself. Think of this idea of of grasping through the rest of the stories of the scriptures. Think about Abraham. What did Abraham do? Abraham was promised to be the father of nations. His name was changed from father to father of many. And these prophecies were given by the angel of the Lord directly to him. And then what happened? He didn't wait for God to fulfill his promise, but he reached out and he grasped. In fact, his wife Sarah with him together conspired to this grasping idea, and so they grasped at a couple of things. The most uh, prominent one we know about is they took Hagar, and they grasped at her and said, let's see if we can make a child through her, and they do, and that child became the father of one of Israel's greatest enemies throughout human history. There was this grasping that happened with Adam and Eve. Think of David, King David, walking in the spirit of God, and so often praying and believing and listening, listening to the prophets, listening to the scriptures, and doing what the scriptures say, and then one afternoon, when everything's great and going wonderful, he looks out from his palace and he sees this woman, and he already has a wife, and he already has concubines, another culture, we don't need to go there, but he looks out and says, I want that one, and he grasps another woman, not given to him by God, not God's provision, He can't wait for God to fulfill, but he chooses to try to meet his own need in his own way. And he reaches out and he grasps for another woman. And that leads to the murder of one of his trusted commanders in his army. And I'm sure there was great tragedy and brokenness around that. And it led to the birth of a son and the death of a son. All because Adam chose to grasp for what God was not giving him. And really if you think about all of the kings throughout the rest of the history of Israel, the good kings were the kings that believed prophecy, they believed the scriptures and they waited for God even when enemies were coming to destroy them and it looked horrible. What happened time after time after time? Miraculous victories by the armies of God. Really good stories to tell about how God came through and these wonderful kings flourished and the people in the kingdom did well. And then we have this other set of Kings who did not trust in God and they did not trust in the ways of God and they grasped for themselves and they went and they listened to mediums and they listened to false prophecies and they tapped into the leaders of other countries like Egypt and Edom nearby and tried to make alliances and in the end they fell and in the end they took the nation of Israel with them. Grasping is the great human failure, failure to trust God. Failure to hear the story God is telling us and walk consistent to that story and say, that story's not enough. I need another chapter. I need a chapter where I step in and I do something, where I take it on for myself. God's not moving fast enough. I just don't see it happening. I need to step in. I need to do something about this. And really what this means is at the heart of sin and brokenness and human failure, is self-reliance. It's a transfer of a reliance on a good God, a powerful God, to reliance on me, on my abilities, on my discernment, on my twist on how things are going and how they should be going because they're not going the way that I think that they should. The last thing I want to do with you here is walk through um, how this happens. How do we get into a space where we rely on ourselves and so completely fail to rely on God? And I think we see the pattern back in Genesis 3, so I'll take you there again. First of all, Eve was most tempted when she was alone. Apparently Adam was nearby, but he wasn't there. This conversation between the serpent and Eve is between the two of them alone. So Eve was alone at this time. She was isolated. She was away from God. She was also apparently isolated from others. This reminds me so often, the worst moments for me spiritually are actually sometimes when I'm on vacation and when I'm alone. And when my guard is down and there's no expectations and I'm just able to relax and I get alone by myself and I begin thinking back about the story back home. When I think about the church and I think about my family and I start to wonder about certain parts of it that I'm kind of not settled with. Like, what's going on in that relationship? What's going on with that son? What's going on with that friend? And I begin to make up a story about what must be causing what seems to be broken there. And I get into this place of isolation from the voice of God and from the voice of others as well. And I begin to believe an alternative story. And this is the trouble. We're alone, we're away from God, we're away from others, and we listen to voices that are contrary the voice of God, but they make sense. And sometimes they even provide new information that we hadn't yet received from God. And now we feel a little bit betrayed. Why didn't God explain more about the fruit? I mean, isn't that the question? Why didn't God say more? Why did he just say, don't eat it? Because I said so. I mean, we've chosen not to do that in parenting, right? Give your kids a motive. Give your kids a reason. Let them understand. God wasn't looking for Adam and Eve to make the right choice. God was looking for even Adam to trust him, to trust him. That's what he was after. We listen to alternative voices, and then we stop believing in the goodness of God. We call into question is God really that good? If he was good, if he was that good, if he is that good, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why was there that suffering? Why did I experience this pain? Why have I watched someone I love go through this? If God is really that good, why are these things going on? And there's this mistrust of God. And then finally, after that entire process has gone full circle within ourselves, we say, it's up to me. It's up to me. I have to pull the trigger. I need to do something. God hasn't told me to do it, I just think it's right. And I just need to do it. Are you resonating with this reality? Does it feel super familiar? Yeah, and I think more than ever in the last 18 months, we've been just kind of surrounded by alternate voices and alternate narratives. And I don't mean the micro narratives of masks and vaccines. I mean the macro narratives of God and the global reality and humanity. And are we getting better or are we getting worse? And is God really good? And why do great people suffer? And all these questions are swirling around. And I wish I had answers, but you know, God primarily doesn't offer us answers. He offers us himself. And he says, would you trust me? Would you trust me? I am God. I love you. I've provided everything that you need. Would you trust me? And that's the great call. The call to Eve and Adam wasn't, here's all the details of why you shouldn't eat this fruit. And if you understand it, you'll make a wise choice. The question was, I've given you an option to trust me or not to trust me. I hope you trust me. I command you to trust me. Trust me. And the answer was, not today. Not today. Let me read that quote again. Olivia, can you take us back there to Dr. Brenner's quote? We have believed the lie of the serpent. We have believed that freedom comes from the exercise of our autonomy. But true autonomy lies in the choice to give ourselves to others in love. It lies in the absolute surrender to ourself, of ourself to God and the kingdom of love. The paradoxical law of God's kingdom is that it is only when we give up what we clutch most desperately that we will receive it. Grasping destroys, surrender restores, and transforms. This is true but so counter-cultural to the way of the culture that we live in. The culture we live in really says, you have the freedom and the resources are here. You have the right to pursue happiness. I love this about the Declaration of Independence that it says, everyone deserves the right to pursue happiness. There's even kind of an an agreement that it may not happen, (laughs) but you have the freedom to pursue it. But what we do know is it won't happen. It's only in the trust of God that these things happen. I'd like to take this in closing kind of to the extreme. In thinking through David and Sherry's experience, but particularly David's experience of his father, and losing his father. And a couple weeks ago, you guys know I went to Kansas and experienced the memorial service of a beloved uncle. I think this is the ultimate test, and the world is trying so desperately not to die today. We all know that we will die. The day will come. But we have this tenacity to say, but please not today. (laughs) And please not this decade, or the next decade. But here's the great hope that we have. God has said, I am there after death. You actually, every human moves from this present reality to the presence of God, no matter their ultimate destiny. When we release someone into death, we are releasing them into the hands of God. That will be the one whom they meet, according to the scriptures, when they pass from this life to the next life. Now, what happens after that? That's a complex story, and they're both tragic and wonderful options, but they don't belong to us. And Jesus even said many times, a lot of you will think that this is your destiny, but you'll actually be wrong. Your destiny won't be that. I'll say, I never knew you, even though you thought I did. And to me, what I do with that confusion is to say, I have to give that to God. And every person that that I have to let go of who passes, I have to pass them on to God. But there's tremendous relief in that because I trust God. I trust God with those I love and care for and I trust God with those I don't know. So no matter who is moving from life into death, they will move back into the presence of God and into the hands of an eternal, loving God and the destiny of their life is up to him. It's not up to me to figure it out and to try to work it out. And for me, there's such rest and there's such freedom. The struggle for me now is to feel that way about myself as well. I understand the fear of death. I had a cancer scare 20 years ago and had to have some deep thoughts. and thought, am I ready at 40 years of age to say, okay, this is it. And you know what? I, I moved from fear to trust. Because the good answer for me wasn't yes or no, was I going to die? The good answer was, who do I belong to and who will I see when I pass? So at 40, it was going to be okay. Now God was, gave me more years, 22 more years, and here I am. But this COVID thing is still out there. And at 62, with a little bit of a lung challenge, there's a little bit of vulnerability here. But I just have to say, I will die. (laughs) It's just going to happen. It's guaranteed. Delay sounds great. Delay sounds great. But maybe delay won't happen for some of us in 2022. Maybe it's our year. Maybe it's our day. But the call is, if you desire life, you don't need to grasp it. You need to surrender to a God who will give it. God loves us. God holds life and death in his hand. God will give and God will take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, but he is good. Let us be, in this current cultural moment, a people of trust, a people who know God is good, a people who know that their destiny belongs to God and that he will do with them the best he could ever do. God writes stories way better than we do And the alternate stories that we are trying to write are just lame. They're just weak. Let's respond to the God who says, may I write your story? Let Jesus be the author and the finisher of our faith. This is our calling. This is the good news.